page 130. One, all gathering around to hit his, but the fallacies of the law Then Jesus told them this parable. As a hunt sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the oak tree and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not that the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his sis, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his mother. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, 
The oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, lostness is a reality. But how do we respond to the lostness of others? When we hear or see someone who is lost, does it simply pique our curiosity? Or does it break our hearts? Or does it prompt us to some form of action? You know, before COVID reached the pandemic status in spring of 2019, hundreds of thousands of people would flock to New Orleans to watch Mardi Gras each year. Before Lent, several days would be wasted in debauchery and drunkenness. And even those who wouldn't participate in the wickedness or the revelry Many would make attempts to go and to watch the wickedness of others. The 2000 film Gladiator portrays Russell Crowe as a Roman emperor or colonel who is betrayed and he is forced to duel to death with wild animals and with other slaves as entertainment to the thousands who watched from the stands. I've heard both American football and international football described as tens of thousands of fans desperately in need of exercise, watching 20 athletes desperately in need of rest. But as I consider the passive fans at Mardi Gras, the passive fans in the arena, I am reminded of Teddy Roosevelt's famous speech. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. Isn't that America today, pointing out how the doer of deeds could have done better? 
The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust, by sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms with great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. The hero is in the arena. As today we celebrate liberty that was fought and won by others, I wonder if we have become too passive. I recall the Minutemen who played a large role in winning our independence from the monarchy 245 years ago. The Minutemen were civilian colonists who self-trained in weaponry, tactics, and military strategies during the American Revolutionary War. They were known for being ready at a minute's notice, hence the name Minutemen. Minutemen provided a highly mobile, rapidly deployed force that enabled the colonies to respond immediately to the war threats. They were among the first to fight in the revolution, and they constituted about a quarter of the entire militia. We have freedom today because Minutemen were ready to fight in a minute's notice. When I was um, a little bit older than Bryson and a little younger than Tanner, I was um, part of a group of young men who wanted to preach. Dr. Al Metzger from Kansas City Youth for Christ formed his Young Preachers Club. And one weekend, as he called us away on a retreat to teach us how to prepare lessons for other Bible clubs, He says, if you are a member of Dr. Rao's Young Preachers Club, there are three things that I ask of you. You must be ready to preach, pray, sing, or die in a moment's notice. Dr. Al is now in heaven, but just as the Minutemen were ready to leap into action, we were the Minutemen, ready to preach, pray, Sing or die in a moment's notice. See, when a problem is spotted, some people leap into action, while others simply grumble, as we see in the first two verses of today's chapter. I think I see in in verses 1 and 2 a move, because... The Pharisees had been preoccupied with themselves, but their preoccupation with their own 
protocols and their own expectations here in these two verses actually move to a sinful pride. The tax collectors were all drawing together, but yet these were filled with a sinful pride. See, the preoccupation I see in the previous chapter that we've looked at in the last couple weeks, because chapter 14 deals with two healings that Jesus did. The Pharisees were preoccupied with all of their protocols. It's Sabbath. You can't do that. Or with their social status. I'm hosting this banquet and you are a guest at my banquet, but you're not allowed to come and I'm too busy taking care of my guests to deal with someone who's got a problem over here. And Jesus contrasts their protocols with his compassion. When Jesus sees two people in need, he heals them. And then he calls, bring in the poor, bring in the disabled. Do not allow our protocols or our social standing to get in the way of doing the right thing. And with this as a background, Jesus has just said, show compassion. What do we read in the first two verses? Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. It's like, this man receives sinners. Not only does he receive them, he socializes with them. He eats with them. I see indeed... What they thought was an accusation Jesus embraced with great enthusiasm. Yes, I do accept the sinners. Yes, I do welcome the tax collectors. Not only do I welcome them, I engage with them. Not simply watching from a distance. So Jesus leverages this accusation by these prideful Pharisees as an opportunity for him to tell three parables. Now, since these are some of Jesus' most famous parables, and we just saw the text dramatized, I won't go into great detail on the individual stories. Suffice it to say that Jesus describes a shepherd and his sheep a woman and her silver, and a man with two sons. See, that's why I was part of the Young Preachers Club. I learned how to alliterate points. Sheep, silver, and sons. But these three parables point to a prophesied pursuit. The prophesied preserve was actually given 600 years earlier. In Ezekiel chapter 34, 590 B.C., Ezekiel prophesied that the religious people will not take care of God's people. What do we read in Ezekiel 34, beginning in the second verse? Thus says the Lord God, Ah, 
Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Verse 4 of that chapter says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. See, God summarizes this situation in Babylon 600 years earlier, and it still remained in Jesus' day that the religious people were ignoring the weak, the sick, the injured, the strayed, and the lost. He says in verse 6, My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And because God's people were scattered and no one was looking for them, he prophesied himself that he would pursue the lost sheep. Because verse 10 says, Thus says the Lord God, I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. 600 years earlier, this incident in Luke chapter 15 was prophesied. And Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was, that was his mission. And he says that pursuit should be our mission as well. Because he doesn't only prophesy that there would be a pursuit, Jesus describes the urgency of pursuing the lost in these three stories. See, the urgency of the pursuit is first seen in the livestock of another. The shepherd, it says that he had a hundred sheep. Not that he owned a hundred sheep, not that he bought a hundred sheep, but he had responsibility for a hundred sheep. And I've learned in my three years here in the Flint Hills that sometimes ranchers buy and sell their own herd, and sometimes they contract to care for the herd of another stockman. I believe it's the second situation that Jesus is talking about. Because if Jesus had Ezekiel 34 in mind, and I think he did, then the shepherds that he described were contracting to care for the flock of another stockman. The shepherds were to care for God's flock. And I believe the shepherd here in Luke chapter 15 was caring for the flock of another. And one of the other man's flock was gone. Now, if you were like me, you give more attention to something that belongs to and will have to be returned to someone else rather than what is mine. If it's my shovel and it gets lost, I'll replace it. But if I am entrusted with another man's tool, I take extra good care of that because dad always trained me, you return something in as good or better condition than as you received it. And I think some of you have learned the same thing from your mothers and fathers. 
And I think that's kind of the motive that this man was entrusted with a hundred sheep. And if one is missing, he's going, he has an urgency to replace it. Because if a caretaker loses too many sheep, he finds himself with no sheep to shepherd. I believe this lost sheep may have been a career ender for the shepherd that Jesus describes. I don't know if he's lost sheep before. I don't know if he has a reputation as a shepherd that loses sheep. But I sense here he has an urgency. One of the hundred is missing, and I am urgent in finding it to return it to the flock. He has an urgent pursuit. Secondly, we read about a woman. She has ten coins. She loses one of the coins. Yeah, no big deal, right? Well, some of the commentators say that these ten coins would have actually formed her dowry. Without these coins, she would not be worth marrying. And because these ten coins made up her dowry, these ten coins were the essence of her future. Without these, no one would ever want to marry her. And so she has an urgency. I better find that lost coin because my future depends upon it. I I conclude that the word diligently in verse 8 and the fact that she calls together her friends and her neighbors when she finds it, it gives credibility to the idea that her very future depended upon these coins. Because if her dowry disappeared, she may never marry. A man who was caring for somebody else's sheep has an urgency in finding the lost one. A woman who thinks, I may never marry if I don't find this coin, has an urgency in finding that coin. And thirdly, a man who has a legacy of two sons, even when our children disappoint us, they remain our legacy, do they not? And so this man had a great passion and an urgency in finding the younger son who had left. Now, we don't know how long the son was gone. We don't know how far he had traveled. But the extent to which the man responded when he returned tells me that he had the heavy burden of a father. It tells me when he saw his son afar off that he ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. Tells me that however long the boy was gone, the father continued to think, what about my son? There's something missing in my legacy until my son returns. The urgency of a lost sheep, the urgency of a lost coin, the urgency of an errant son. But not only was it urgent, the, the search becomes quite intense. The intensity of the pursuit. In verse four, he says that the man would go and search for the sheep. Now, many of us have heard sermons about the Great Commission. Make disciples as you are going, baptizing and teaching. And so go in the Great Commission is kind of a, a participle, as you are going or as you move about, make sure that you make disciples. So go in that setting is kind of a 
you know, as you are going. But the go here in verse 4 with this shepherd, he will leave, he will go, he will intentionally and with intensity move to find the lost sheep. In the movie, A Few Good Men, which is a story about two Marines who face a court-martial, a major part of the trial hinges on what a private and what a colonel packed for the trip. And the point of, the, of, of, of that trial is that even a weekend trip requires some intentional planning and packing for the trip. My wife and I are going to be gone overnight visiting with some family over in Kansas City and I got up this morning and I planned to be gone and I packed for it with intentionality. What am I going to need? Let me prepare for this. And that intentionality of preparing to go somewhere needs to um, undergird our attitude towards the lost. That we will intentionally and intensely seek and pursue after the lost. See, the leaving of one's responsibility to search for something lost naturally has more intensity than, well, you know, he just kind of wandered off. And as he was watching the other 99, he kind of kept an eye out in case that hundredth sheep showed up. He intently left the 99 with other shepherds so that they were safe and then went after the one that was missing. In verse 8, I see that he that she would seek diligently to find that coin. It's more than just as I move about the house, I'll keep my eyes open and maybe the coin will show up. The man would go to find the sheep. The woman would seek diligently to find that lost coin. And then in verse 23, while he was still a long way off, the father ran now, I have admiration for people like Amy Budke's cross-country runners who put in hundreds of miles to train for meets. I'm at the point in my life where if I'm running, you better look behind me because something is inspiring my movement. And if I were to run, it is an inspired movement. And as this Father runs to his son. It is an inspired movement. There's an intensity as he pursues after his son. Well, the urgency and the intensity of these three pursuits then result in three parties. The first party in verses 6 and 7 is a party for they rejoice with friends and with neighbors and there's rejoicing in heaven. The second party is described in verses 9 and 10. There is rejoicing with friends and neighbors and before the angels of God. And the third party is described in verse 23 as a feast for all of the servants and their families. But these three parties, these three parables, are all meant to point to 
one point to all three of the parables. There is one principle Jesus is trying to communicate. The moral of the three stories is, don't miss this, have I regained your attention? The one point to all three parables is this. Sinners who repent generate joy. And if we have an urgency and an intensity of seeking to save that which is lost, we get to share in that joy as well. See, verse 7 tells us there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We see in verse 10 that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And while verses 17 through 20 describe the repentance of the younger son, the story of the older son, we expect Jesus to say, and there was repentance and there was great joy. But it's not there. The first story, there's repentance, great joy. The second story, there's repentance, great joy. The third parable ends and there's no repentance and there's no joy. Perhaps the very sinful pride of verses 1 and 2, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who grumbled about, look at those people. Perhaps that sinful pride is what Jesus is driving home when he says the older son did not repent. He remained without repentance. So there was no joy. So my question for us today, what is your response to the lostness of our neighbors? Is it simply a passive prayer? Oh, somehow, God bless America. God bless my neighbors. Passively. I I fear that too many Christians are like the slow-moving traffic near an accident. There's some sick attraction that keeps us from looking away, even though we do nothing to help. We see the carnage. We know it is serious. We're grateful that it isn't us, but we don't have enough empathy or the ability to do anything about it. We've seen the video of the condominium collapsing. We hear the stories of family without answers. Then we conclude, well, that's awful, but there's nothing I can do about it. And we have seen so many things and concluded there's nothing I can do about it. That when we look at the lost people of Chase County, we simply say, well, that's that's awful, but there's nothing I can do about it. The shepherd knew a sheep was lost, so he went to find it. The woman knew her silver was gone, so she searched intensely until it was found. 
The man longed for his son and kept looking for him and responded by running at the first hint that a return was possible. The next time you read of crime, the next time you hear of a neighbor with a heartache, the next time you learn of a neighbor who is in need, my prayer is that we would be known as people who actively seek and offer salvation to those who are willing to repent. Amen? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, and so should we. Our final song this morning is a a song of resolve. It's a song that we are going to get out of the stands and we're going to get into the arena and we are going to do what we should do. We are going to send the light and then in verse 4, we are going to take the light. Stand with me as we sing together.